0: Welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome to the Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark and Kim. How are you doing this week, Mark?
1: I am great, Kim great me you? too oh, i'm right. fine i'm fine i always ask you but i wait for the answer yeah. right <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we've got an interesting article that we ran across from forbes which was talking about jobs in the wine industry and if you have been bit by the wine bug and all of the romance that working in wine entails how do you get into the industry what are some good starter jobs and a lot of these i think were something that people could immediately latch on to and other ones maybe took a little bit of extra thinking.
1: Yeah so wine career paths and they started out pretty basic saying you can help with the harvest. Right. So manual physical labor in the wine world. Go
0: work at a winery and help pick the grapes for the harvest but there are a couple of other things within that within just saying oh go pick grapes because there usually are internships often that are available at wineries and other things that you can do at a winery.
1: And we just talked about labor shortages in in the wine world so this is in demand highly Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of local wineries in our area that this Does also affect right.
0: So, and a lot of the times, it's not necessarily a paying job per se. Sometimes it's a more of a spend a weekend and you volunteer some of your time. Sometimes these internships are more that you are doing it for the experience and for the education, and maybe your room and board is free, but you don't get paid too much. This is something that does take physical labor, and it takes a lot of time. And if you have a lot of the responsibilities in your life, that this might not necessarily be the best fit for you. But finding a place. That will let you help with the harvest, I think, is a really nice way to start if you want to get a little bit of experience in what winemaking
1: and wine growing is all about. And it is seasonal and it is flexible. So mm-hmm. if you need that type of hours, this is the one in the wide world for you. Right. Yeah.
0: And it's like having done it, it's kind of fun.
1: So the, the second thing they talked about was being a on the supplier or distributor side. And Kim, you have the experience as the the supplier and distributor.
0: And one thing I would say for this is this is not an entry-level job. I was kind of surprised that this was included in the list because you can't really just jump into a supplier position never having worked in the wine world before. I know from my interviews and from my jobs on this side of the business that they do require people to have some wine experience, whether you worked in a store for a little while or you have a little bit of a restaurant background or also if you have a sales background. So it is possible that if you... You have worked in sales for a little while and want to get into wine sales, so transition from selling a different kind of product. Come if you are coming from a sales job and want to learn about wine and then transition into this kind of job, then then this could be for you. But I know from experience that having a little bit of wine knowledge before you go into selling the product is very valuable.
1: I think the career idea with the distributor in Massachusetts there's you know five major Companies that they have many different aspects that need help. You know, mm-hmm. graphics, shipping. Right. They're very stable companies, but many times you're talking about sales. Can many times what they do is you go in if you have no experience, but you want to learn about wine. They'll start you out as say a merchandiser, so you're you're familiar with the products. You you can take educational classes with the distributor, and then you can work your way up. Because then when a sales job becomes open, they're going to look inside the company and move somebody up. So right. many times. Like you said, Kim, is sales, you can't just walk in and say, yeah, I, I can sell if you don't know anything about the product, but they love moving people up within the company. So I think looking at learning about wine, it's a great way to start to get in with these companies because yep. they will train you.
0: I think that's a great, a great point is that you don't just have to jump right into a sales job. There are other opportunities in companies that do deal with wine. And this is a good segue into one of the other career paths that they mentioned, which was marketing. So marketing and PR for either... A winery or a wine business or a PR company that specializes in wine and in beverages. So if you have a marketing background, and this is something that that you love to do, and you want to do a little bit more with it in the wine world, then this could be a good fit for people too. So kind of thinking outside the box a little bit. Sometimes when we think about wine jobs, we just think about working in a store or working at a winery or making wine. But there are these other parts of the business that are very important. If a wine isn't marketed, it's not going to Somebody has to be out there selling the product and making making it appealing. So even graphic designers who design wine labels, that's another part of this whole industry.
1: Yeah, the marketing thing nowadays is huge. It's say just social media marketing. How do you promote wine with social media? And um, I think that's one thing that's huge growth in the wine mm-hmm. industry. The, one of the other things we're getting back into the winery help, they're talking about tasting room staff jobs. So I think, again, if you want to get into wine, learn about wine, nothing is better than going to work at a tasting room where you're tasting all the time and learning about wine.
0: Right. I think this is a great option for people who lose live around wineries, and it gets you to have a real deep understanding and knowledge not only of the wines of that particular winery, but then you learn broadly about the business and about winemaking, grape growing, and all these other parts of the wine trade.
1: And again, there's a lot of local wineries around here that probably you could find some job if you're interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one was a lab technician. And Kim, a lot of people don't like to hear this part about the wine industry, but there are chemical or engineers that are needed in labs in the wine world.
0: And there's a lot of science that goes into winemaking, so it's not necessarily just this bucolic idea of people pick grapes and they bring them into a winery and they stomp on them and like, poof, magic, wine is made. There's biological science needs there are chemical science needs and a lot of other components depending on the size of the winery and how how much of those how much science goes into the winemaking of that particular winery. So there are needs for lab technicians and for folks who know about pests in the vineyards and you know the life cycle of the grape and other people with a science background are definitely needed in the wine industry.
1: And like the distributor jobs, Kim, these lab techs or these types of jobs are typically for some of the bigger corporations. So they're very stable wine jobs out there. I've always, and I'm geek the geeky part. I mean the wine can you know me with my wanting to know what's in the wine but I reach out to a lot of these people in the labs out in California to ask questions and they think I'm crazy a lot of times but <laughs> if anyone's listening who's into chemistry I need to talk to you about a few things <laughs> so the last thing they said was just basic retail which we I'm in now and you've had right. experience in the past or hospitality staff which is always looking for help
0: and this is I think how the vast majority of people get into the business you start on that bottom rung. You work in a wine store or your server at a restaurant and you are learning on the job. So maybe if you want to increase your knowledge, you take some classes, you take some certification programs, but that on the job learning day in and day out is very, very valuable for learning about wine. And then also as a stepping stone into growing your professional life within the wine industry.
1: In both retail, restaurant, you can start entry-level jobs and in- just learn from observing the products and tastes. It's a great way to get into the industry.
0: I barely knew anything about wine when I started in my first wine job, but I learned and I kept at it and it's been wonderful for me. It's like, wow, I found a career. So it definitely is something that you can build your life around, that you can build a career around. We've both done it and we love it. There was another component to this kind of working retail restaurant thing that a number of years ago, I don't think was really an option. But it's more like working for tasting companies or working for wine festivals where you're the person who's pouring the wine, you're talking about the wine to people who are coming to taste with you. So this is another option for a lot of people that use it as like a side gig. And I did it for a, a couple of years where you work for a company that then sends you out either to stores or to tastings so that you're the person there pouring wine for the general public. And again, this is a great way to kind of get your feet wet and to learn a little bit about wine and to see what the industry is all about
1: yeah that's a that's a great point Kim because if our listeners want a way to kind of relate that if you go into a supermarket and there's someone handing out a hot dog sample or something same positions are available for people in the alcohol industry where you go into licensed stores and give out samples or to shows and they pay good for a short amount of time so something to look at Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinlickers.com. Our next topic is from Wine Enthusiast Magazine, and it talks about what does... California mean when it's on the label? So you pick up a bottle of wine, you'll notice the region, and it'll just say California. And Kim, a lot of this has to do with what they call AVAs or American Viticultural Areas. Can you explain to our listeners what that term means?
0: So it pretty much is just telling you where are the grapes grown? Where is this wine from? And you can have something as broad as a label that just says California, or you could have something as specific as telling you exactly where that vineyard is located that all of those grapes came from. So for most labels. People tend to consider that the more specific the area it comes from is more of an indication of quality, but really what it is is a guarantee of the place where these grapes came from.
1: So this was talking about California, and California is a statewide AVA, so it can be north to south. If it says California, it has to be 100% of the grapes from California, but they don't have to tell you where in California it's right. from.
0: So it could be really from from anywhere. From could be someplace by the Coast that's relatively cool, or it can be someplace either farther inland or or down in one of the, the hotter regions. So you, you really don't necessarily know how hot or how cool the, those growing conditions for those grapes were.
1: And we love talking about, you You mentioned earlier, Kim, about uh, breaking it down or to smaller. So we like looking at this as a circle. And if you think of the state of California as the outer part of the circle, the next AVA downsize would be like a region like Napa Valley. And then the inner circle would be like, a smaller AVA within Napa Valley, and then inside that would be a vineyard. So you're taking that circle, you're shrinking it down. Generally, it leads to more quality grapes being put in the wine, higher cost- Um, But AVA is something to keep an eye on and always ask when you see a region on a wine of what is in there, how much is in there.
0: Right, and so when you see a label that just says California, usually what is happening is those grapes have been sourced or purchased from a number of different places from all over California. So sometimes if they are, say, from three different places, but those certain places um, are names that are recognizable to wine drinkers, then they might put that information on the back of the label. They might say, okay, grapes are sourced from Monterey and from Sonoma and from I don't know Paso Robles or some some other place. But then other ones may not. They may be purchasing grapes from a different place every year or don't necessarily want to tell you where those grapes are coming from. So they don't have to tell you that information. But the general rule of thumb, you know, is if the if the grapes come from a more specific area, they will generally tell you that on the label because they want to take advantage of the cachet of the more specific area because that usually is an indicator of better quality.
1: And one enthusiast in this article did stress don't avoid the California wines, but just be aware of things and do some research to find out what you're getting in that California right. wine. I love that.
0: And I, I I really liked this specifically because one of the wines that they mention is one of my favorite wines. And it just has a California appellation on it. And every year, you know, the grapes might come from slightly different places, but it's probably my favorite inexpensive white wine to drink. And it just has a California appellation on it. And I love it. And I drink it all the time and I use it in tastings.
1: And a A lot of times the bigger brands or the more popular or higher produced wines they'll just say California and typically every year they're the same and they source grapes from different spots every year so that is I guess I don't know if I can say it's a good thing or a bad thing about wine but it's a good example of California labeled wines because they'll always try to make the style using the grapes they get from anywhere in California right
0: right. and that's the beauty of being able to blend is that often if the winemaker is trying to do a consistent style from year to year because they've developed consumers who like their style and like that wine and want to keep buying it they want to provide their consumers with some consistency and it's a different philosophy than a lot of say french winemakers have where it's like no no no, this is what the weather is giving us this year and you 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 need to accept that there are going to be differences from one vintage to the next but for a lot of california producers especially these bigger brand makers that it's it's not that way it's more like okay you like what we produce we're going to try to give it to you the same every day Every year.
1: Yeah, and many times you can you can research and the producer might say, Yeah, this year we have fifty percent load i 50% fruit, 50% Paso fruit. Other times I just say it's California fruit. So Kim, you would talk about your favorite California wine. When you when you hear California wine, are you putting a price point to that?
0: It's usually a little bit lower price point. Like I wouldn't expect that a wine, say over 20 or $25 would just have a, a basic California label on it. I would think that for something that is going to be charging that kind of money, that they would be sourcing their fruit from slightly more specific areas and then tell you about about it.
1: I was hoping you were going to say like 10 to 15 but the reason no, I brought gonna, it up I'm is... I'm going to go with 20. 20? <laughs> All right. Or well, the reason I brought it up is because I was kind of surprised that the they recommended three wines in this article and the price points were 14, 16, and 18. So...
0: I think they inflated those prices a little bit frankly though because the one that I like the, the most it's the the Pine Ridge. Pine Ridge is the producer and it's a, a blended white made from Chenin Blanc and Viognier and they had this quoted at $16 a bottle and it's not... I don't think I've ever seen it and maybe it's just because we're in Massachusetts and not in California. I've never seen it close to $16. It's usually closer to like 12 or 14.
1: So you stick in with the under 20. I'm sticking with under 20. Uh, well, I, I always when I talk about California wine, I am always thinking under 15.
0: Yeah, I I could be persuaded to under 15. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark on his website at franklinliquors.com and you can find more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. Recent article in Wine Spectator magazine about millennials and their drinking habits and do grape varieties and places of origin really matter or is it really all about style for
1: millennials? Yeah, and when we first... Looked at this article together, Kim. You had an issue with it. Yeah, I I really, I, I kind of had
0: an issue with this. So the, the you premise You don't like of, millennials? No, I have no problem all with millennials. Right. The premise of the article was that millennials are buying wine in a different way than other generations. And I think that this is just, this happens all the time. One generation will be different from its parents' generation because they want to differentiate themselves and their habits are going to be a little bit different. Technology is different. But they started the article by saying that grapes and place aren't necessarily important to millennials. That what are important what's important is the stories and the authenticity behind things. And then they go on to say that the wines that are important to them are wines that don't list a grape variety and don't have anything specific about the wine, that it's just this is a red and it's fruity and or this is a dry white, blah, 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 blah. How is that authentic? Like that, those two co- things are completely opposite to me when it comes to wine. I would think that if you if what is important to you in a product and in the marketing and the brand, is that it's telling you a story and that you are developing a connection with the real story behind what is going on And who produced this product Then how can you then Throw all those things Out the window yeah, Does that they, make sense
1: uh, Yeah well They're following trends We we always hear about trends We talk about trends And I'm thinking more They're looking at The millennial average drinker Versus the geeky drinker And and you said About the story I think they're actually Targeting people With more of a story Than all the other Geeky stuff So the, the, the in the article They mentioned There was a, a company That came out With a wine I think it was also In a can Mm-hmm. And all it says is sweet, dry, red, white. So this consumer they're targeting wants a beverage. They don't they don't want you know me waiting on them asking them acidity, tannins, <laughs> what grape. They just come in, they want a red wine, that's it, right? So I understand the different what you're saying, but I see what they're trying to gather because there are people they want to get into wine and this is the quickest way just it's red buy it and they are so you're, so
0: you're saying that in this case this is sort of the the gateway to wine is this oversimplification of what's on the label and not really even telling you anything more specific about right.
1: that and I think the way I can kind of convince you on this game is <laughs> and we talked about this in the past is red wine blends what's the trend right. red wine blends it's apothic red what's in apothic red nobody right. knows right so you go in the store I want a red blend I'm picking up apothic red I don't care what's in it. And I think that's selling and that's what they're going after with this.
0: I think my issue more was back what I said about you know this emphasis on authenticity and then what you're selling them is the total opposite of that. Because- it doesn't tell you where it's from. It doesn't tell you who's made it. It doesn't tell you the grape variety in there. There's no, like this story that has been developed around it is completely fictional. Like it doesn't have any tie to the actual people who are producing the wine. And maybe that's my beef with this is, you know, this idea behind millennials want something authentic, but we're going to give them something that is all branding and all marketing and n- nothing in nothing authentic. Right. I-, I guess I think that's I, my problem.
1: I, I agree. I totally agree with that because as wine geeks and wine educators, we're passionate about people understanding. And this is building more on the opposite. Don't don't care what's right. in it. Don't don't care who you're giving your money to. Just it's marketing.
0: Right. It's it's we're creating a brand and we're creating a brand around this oversimplification of wine. So it's like turning the tables a little bit. Okay. We're not going to bog you down with. grape variety and terroir and all these other acid and tannins like you just said but we're we're going to develop a brand that is going to be appealing to a certain age range and then use that as a stepping stone to other fine wine, perhaps? Yeah.
1: Oh, it'll be sad if this generation gets their education this way about wine, just as a beverage, not as what the grape is. Where did that grape come from? You know, the history, the people behind it. So hopefully we won't see a big trend in that because we'd have to totally redo our education on wine because 99% of it is the story behind the grape and the taste and
0: this actually made me think more like what we are doing is going back to the era of the jug wine
1: correct because what you you know drink it
0: (laughs) what is yeah what is you know what is in a jug is mass produced there's really nothing specific about it it's fruity it's sweet and it's meant for lots of consumption without having to think about it too much and that is kind of what this
1: is hitting me like yeah that's a that's a great point because it might be coming back. Maybe they've seen the trend is people want just the basic, it's, you know, bring it all back. the jug
0: you, wine, but in a different yeah, package.
1: You only had so many choices, right? You had Lances, you had Matus, <laughs> you had Blue Nun, and you accepted you it. You had Hardy right?
0: Burgundy, yeah, that was it. and you so had
1: So It's almost Chablis. exactly right, Kim. It's the same exact thing, so... I'm hoping it's not a trend that that's coming around, but we might have to adapt uh, some things to that.
0: Or, or we need to include this when I talk about big branded wines with names from places that were originally from Europe and then that were uh, used in California for those uh, those big
1: jugs. So stay tuned. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you like more information about myself, please go to franklinlickers.com. Next, we want to talk about a story that was in Decanter Magazine about Prosecco coming out with a rosé style, and Kim, this is two of the biggest wine trends right now, Prosecco and rose so this I think is a great idea.
0: I completely agree. I think from a marketing perspective, from the perspective of giving the consumer what the consumer wants, I think that this could be really hot. But I can also see why some traditional Prosecco producers are really shaking their heads at this.
1: So we always, I love talking about Prosecco, the region, the grapes. Uh, It's a great history, a great story. One of the things a lot of people have to understand is there's levels of, of government labeling in Italy. So there's what they call the DOCG and the DOC. So this story was talking about Prosecco DOC level will allow the rosé style to be made. So currently, Prosecco must be a minimum 85% of a white grape called Glara, and they can use 15% of a red grape Pinot Noir. Rosé style will allow them to actually, the skins to touch and make it rosé color right
0: so it's not going to be 100 percent pinot noir with skin contact it's going to be that there will be allowed this small amount of pinot noir to be added to the the rest of it being Glara. so i don't think it's necessarily going to change the style too too much because the pinot and the glera are already allowed to be blended in order to make prosecco in the first place so in this case you're getting a little bit of that color but then also a little bit of that pinot noir kind of cherry berry fruit in there as well.
1: And this is a very new release in the wine world, especially with the Italian wines, so they have not decided yet if the DOCG level, which is basically three small villages in Veneto region, if they will be making this, and chances are they won't because they don't agree uh, with that. Right,
0: and that might be the compromise from them as well because there are a lot of Prosecco producers who don't want this to happen, and I think most of it tends to be on those higher end, those more specific sub-regions of Prosecco that are making this higher quality style of Prosecco. They don't want the pink stuff there. They want to be known for these higher quality sparkling wines that they're making. So so maybe that will be the compromise. It's like, okay, everybody else can produce a Rosé Prosecco if they choose to, but we're going to keep these special regions only making the white, fully sparkling style that, that they have become known for.
1: And a lot of, the, I think, the resistance to the higher level making a Rosé style is they... It's a historic thing. They never did that historically, so they don't want to do that. Right. And I think it has a lot to do with their, their level of, of certification. They can't.
0: Yeah. Italian winemakers have never really been ones to follow trends. So to see this coming about is sort of a little different, I think, from our perspective. We're not used to seeing Italians taking these big steps to do something so wildly different in response to what the consumer is drinking and what the market is asking for.
1: They're estimating, Kim, 20% of the production could be rosé prosecco wow that could totally
0: change the you know the idea of prosecco
1: that's huge it's huge and they they listed some numbers which i thought were pretty amazing in 2017 440 million bottles of doc level prosecco were produced wow that's a lot and then but i was shocked the docg level which is such a smaller region, they actually made a hundred million. I mean it's three hundred million less, but they still made a hundred million. So you're the bubbly queen, you know that it's a quick production method, so they can really crank it out. It's not the traditional sparkling method, um, and it's fresh, and they have to get it out quick. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the
0: winery doesn't have to sit on all of those bottles so that they have 18 months or two years of aging like champagne does. So they make it, and they bottle it, and then it gets to your, gets to your store, gets to your restaurant, even these higher quality ones. So it's, uh, yeah, this is definitely something to, to be watching.
1: I'm glad we talked about it because I think consumers right now have to be careful. Have you seen a lot of rosé? Italian sparkling next to proseccos.
0: I haven't seen too many in person, but when I do internet searches, there are certainly a lot of things that come up that are—I don't say pretending to be prosecco, but we'll use the word prosecco, but not be from Northern Italy. Yeah. So that's definitely things that the consumer has to look out for.
1: That was that was my exact yeah. point. Is that the people are seeing that these two trends—they can't officially make prosecco rosé, but they're making these sparklers from the similar regions with different grapes and they're they're putting them next to that the area so people think it is and
0: depending on where you are the, the the local government could constitute that as fraud like the french government comes down really really hard on those kinds of things so it's one of those buyer beware kinds of things that you really do need to pay attention to what it is that you're buying
1: Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. Please look for us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. You can also listen to past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud. Cheers.